Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Rest is History. It's Sunday morning, the American presidential election has reached its climax and last night, among considerable recrimination from Donald Trump, Joe Biden was declared the 46th president of the United States of America. It was an election for the very soul of modern America, with Trump fighting tooth and nail to cling on to power. So is this unheard of? Who does Trump think he is? Is he a a modern-day Julius Caesar or an updated and slightly shop-soiled Richard Nixon, ancient or modern? Well, the joke is, of course, that um, uh, Trump was brought the news that uh, Biden had been elected while he was on the golf course. So there have been uh, lots of comments about uh, dictators being cornered in bunkers. Um, the Hitler parallel has been much aired, but isn't one, I think, Dominic, that uh, that you would have much time for? Uh, probably not. Uh, the joke smith uh, who's just spoken is, of course, my sparring partner, Tom Holland. The Trump-Hitler analogy, my goodness, that's a well-worn analogy and one for which I have absolutely no time at all. Actually, one thing that Trump and Hitler had in common, two things they had in common, Tom, uh, they're both very funny about their food. So Hitler, of course, was a vegetarian and Trump only eats McDonald's burgers. Um, and they're both very lazy. So Hitler didn't get up until kind of midday and didn't do any work. And I don't think Donald Trump's work ethic has ever really... Um... And w- was, was, was Hitler teetotal? Yes, he was. So... so Trump is as well. So there's a third comparison. Is Trump teetotal? So they're, they're, they're stacking up. <laughs> yes. Hitler was less but... orange. Hitler was less orange. No doubt about that. And, yeah, didn't, yeah. and not into golf, as far as I know. OK, OK. So I think that we're really pushing the, uh, the, the boundaries of historical inquiry here. We are. Um, but Dominic, to actually talking of historical inquiry... Um, I'm, I'm right, aren't I, that, that Nixon was a particular area of specialisation for you? That's kind of the, the, the area you did your doctorate in. Um, well, I did my doctorate in sort of late 60s American politics, and that's Richard Nixon's time. So the election of 1968, that's when Nixon, running as a law and order, uh, law and order candidate, um, carried all before him and he became US president. And I used to teach a, a course that lasted all year about Richard Nixon 
with my it was my special right. subject course and it was brilliant we kind right. of got into nixon's head we started with his love letters to pat his wife and we ended with him basically being winched out of the white house kicking and screaming and that of course okay. is the parallel because you know he's yeah. he's the um he's the only analogy i can think of of somebody leaving the white house in this with this sort of air of shambolic indignity um that we have right now with with mr trump and Nixon was, of course, did not lose an election. He, no, he's an election he, winner. He, you know, he, Massive winner. Yeah, election winner. So he's he's essentially has to resign. Um, yeah. Did 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 he fight to stay in the White House as furiously as Trump is currently fighting? He yes, I suppose he did. So the, it's an extraordinary story. The Nixon story. It's much more complicated than the Trump story because Nixon won the 1972 presidential election in a stonking landslide. So there's a big contrast there with Trump. Nixon won. Every single state except Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. So this sort of utter wipeout of the Democrats. But Nixon's gnawing insecurity was such that he had got his team effectively to, to bug the Democrats. He colluded in and then he covered it up and then he covered up the cover up. And so you had this unfolding scandal for the next sort of 18 months or so. And it, when it turned out that Nixon had been taping himself and his sort of dirty secrets were aired before the American public, he had to go. But of course, as politicians always do, he fought and he, you know, he, he sort of tried everything. He tried to spin things. And eventually in August 1974, he, the Republican senators told him, you know, time's up and he had to go. But where I think the parallel works is that, you know, Nixon left in the most undignified way possible. So he gave a fairly standard resignation speech to the nation. But when it came to the day of his departure, so the morning of his departure, he stayed up all night, sort of sweating and staring into the shadows. And then, and he's knackered and he's overwrought and he's a bit of a, bit of a mess. And he gives this extraordinary farewell speech to his staff, which is televised. And anyone, the listeners who've seen the, the Anthony Hopkins film, Nixon, will probably remember this. And he just completely disintegrates on camera. He's talking about his dad, who was a little guy and a common man. He says his mother was a saint. He basically starts crying when he talks about his mother. And it's just this awful disintegration and it, and flies completely in the face of everything Americans expect from their president, which is a level of dignity and civility yeah. and sort of sobriety and all the rest of it. And has sort of gone down as the, the acme of what not to do, how not to leave the White House. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because... Um, I, I mean, part one of the things, of course, that, that, that Trump's behaviour raises is the question of why do people find it so shocking and why did people find Nixon's behaviour so shocking? And it suggests that there is a kind of very strong, often unwritten code about how Americans expect their politicians and particularly their leaders to behave. And of course, this so often goes against, against the reality, because I guess to, to, to reach the top of American politics, you have to play hard and dirty. But there is a kind of always this sense that, um, you know, there are moral standards that you have to live up to. Yeah. And if, as Trump's currently doing, and as, as Nixon did, you, you break that, then people are genuinely shocked. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. I mean, they do fight hard. But actually, when you look back at American politics, the striking thing is how often they do feel the need to conform to these codes. So Al Gore, when he lost the presidency to George Bush and George W. Bush in 2000, in kind of dubious circumstances, 
he behaved in a very, you know, Roman way. He ah, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, that's a gift uh, to you, Tom. Uh, I'll never, I'll never speak again is. in this podcast. <laughs> he gives them all away. <laughs> it does. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. Terrible. He loses possession. It's a schoolboy error. Yeah, it is Roman. <laughs> it is Roman. I'm so glad you brought that up because, of course, the, the, the question of the code, the code of honor. Yeah. I mean, it goes back ultimately to the, I guess, to the, the example of Washington. It does. I'm glad you brought it back to American politics, Tom, and, and left the Romans behind. Yeah. Well, well, wait, wait, because Washington is a general. He's a victorious general who has thrown out a king and who has laboured to establish a republic. Yes. And so the big the big question is, you know, is he going to lay down his sword? Is he going to return to his farm? And it so happens that the American founding fathers, who are absolutely steeped in the study of ancient Roman history, have the model of the Roman Republic to hand because the Roman Republic is established after a king is expelled. And it's, it, 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 it works because it establishes this code, the Mos Maiorum, they call them, the kind of the customs held to by the ancestors that everyone is expected to hold to. And that's what the founding fathers are yeah. kind of looking to. And that's the model that Washington is, uh, is drawing on. Exactly. So the Washington story is a, a, a good one. So he basically gives up his command in 1783. The Continental Army has won, or rather the French have won the war for them. Um, Britain has basically given up. America has its independence. And actually, there's then a six-year break before Washington actually becomes president. So he doesn't actually become president until 1789. And basically, they have to drag him kicking and screaming into the job. He doesn't really want to do it. They turn to him because he's a unifying figure, because he's a patriotic figure and all the rest of it. But he doesn't really fancy it. And then after his first term, again, he, he doesn't really want to carry on. And they basically compel him. The other founding fathers say, no, no, you must stay and do it. And then he leaves after his second term and establishes this tradition, which only one president, FDR, in the Second World War, has ever broken, that a president will only do two terms. So that, that sort of, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to give you the ball back so easily, but that sort of um, ethos of the reluctant leader who has to be sort yeah. of coerced into the job. I mean, he's obviously trying to live up. I mean, he was the president of a, a group called the Society of the Cincinnati. Um, and yeah. there you have your Roman yeah. hero, Cincinnatus, that I'm sure you're about to tell us about. I, I certainly have. So Cincinnatus is, is absolutely the archetype for this, who is um, a legendary figure from the early years of the Roman Republic. And the reason that he serves as such an iconic figure, both for the Romans and then for the Americans, is that um, he's a great war leader who is also a farmer and he is summoned from his plough to save his people to lead his country. And then having saved his country, he then returns to the plough. And this is such a kind of perfect image for Washington. That you, 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 that there's a sensational statue. I think, it, I think it's in the Smithsonian by um, Horatio Greenough, which um, obviously this is a podcast, so unfortunately I can't bring it up for you. But anyone, Google it. it it's, it's so brilliant. It's, it's Washington with his wig in a toga holding a sword. And it, it, it perfectly illustrates this kind of strange 18th century Roman fusion that the American, early American Republic kind of absolutely plays with. So those early Americans, I mean, they basically thought they were the Romans, didn't they? But particular kind of Romans, right? Because obviously there's lots of, they have this, do they have this idealised image of Rome, do you think? I mean, obviously well, most Romans are probably just like us. Yes, they're, they're, they're haunted by, by the fact that, of course, the um, the early days of the Republic, when everyone is virtuous and, and, and kind of yeoman farmers and at their plough, that 
the Roman, the Roman Republic expands, it becomes incredibly wealthy, it becomes um, a superpower, it establishes its uh, rule across the whole of the Mediterranean. And this then provides opportunities for uh, ambitious Roman politicians to put the entire Republic in its shadow. And in due course, that results in the establishment of an autocracy. And so every founding father is nervously aware of this. And so Benjamin Franklin, when he comes, you know, he, he, he says, you know, is it going to be a republic? And he says, yeah, it's going to be a republic if we can keep hold of it. Mm. And that anxiety is always, and I guess it's, it's because, um, you know, Nixon is very keen on the idea of, of America as an imperial republic. And so that's part of the shadow, I would guess, is it, of, of what's going on with Watergate and people's anxiety about him? Yeah, I mean, people talked about the imperial presidency. You're absolutely right. So obviously what had happened, I mean, basically until the 20th century, you know, America was kind of happening, but as far as the rest of the world was concerned, it was somewhere else. Who cared about them? Let them get on with it. But then in the 20th century, America does become an empire. I mean, there's people argue about this, but there's no doubt, really. It has colonies, it has overseas bases, it has influence, it wins wars in foreign countries. Um, and the people talk about the president as an American Caesar. They use that sort of terminology um and nixon so the so the presidencies of lbj lyndon johnson who preceded nixon who's famous for vietnam and then nixon who ends the vietnam war that's kind of the high point of what people think of as the imperial presidency of a president that can do what he wants he can evade who he wants he's accumulating more and more power and in certainly nixon's case he's using people like the fbi to you know survey his opponents to bug his opponents um there's this sort of fear which now seems completely hysterical, but at the time was very real in the early 1970s that, you know, under Nixon, America was turning into a sort of police state. And actually, that's not so different from what we've heard in the last four years from Donald Trump's critics who believe that he represents the end of the Republican dream. Right. And, and again, I think that, that, is, that, that that's been an anxiety that has shadowed the American Republic pretty much from the beginning. I mean, basically, if you model yourself on, on Rome, if you have a capital, if you have a Senate, if your capital city has loads of columns and pillars that look like ancient Rome, then there are two things that are going to worry you. The, the first is that if you're a, a republic, that essentially the republic is going to collapse and that a Caesar is going to emerge and Augustus. Uh, and the second one is that the entire, you know, Rome, the Roman Empire fell. And so the American Empire will fall. Yeah. And I think that those, those, that's a kind of, although the Hitler, you know, Trump as Hitler has been very, very kind of popular um, theme over the past four years. I think the Trump as a kind of Caesar has also been pretty popular. I've, I know I've made a lot of good money <laughs> writing far-fetched comparisons yes. between Trump and Nero and so on. People often talk um, about the drawbacks of the Trump presidency, but they don't mention this one, which is the greatest, which is the uh, immense, <laughs> immense amount of money you've made out of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, not immense amount of money. I mean, scratching together the odd penny. Um, but I, I, I think that that is a kind of... It, it, it's been there right from... So Andrew Jackson, Yeah, it was a general, a successful general. 1812 war general, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, people start thinking that he's going to be a, a Caesar. Um, and I think that essentially, the, the idea, if you model yourself on Rome, the idea that you're going to decline and fall is kind of hardwired into your, into your mind. But isn't it odd, Tom, that um, they keep electing generals, which is, is kind of a Roman thing in itself. So Andrew Jackson is a general, yeah, Ulysses absolutely. Grant yeah. after the Civil War. Yeah. And then even after World War II, they, they go for Eisenhower, you know, the architect of D-Day. Although, although what's interesting with Biden... 
who, 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 like every other man of his generation, uh, president of his generation, did not serve in Vietnam. Actually, the key fact about recent presidents is that they didn't serve in the military. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of interesting. And the one who did famously fail to win, John McCain. So John McCain right. is actually an yes. extraordinarily Roman figure, isn't he? I mean, he's yes, like somebody he who's basically yes. decided to role play his entire life yes. as a Roman yes. war hero. Yes, <laughs> yes, because he, 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 he fights for his country. He gets captured and brutally tortured and refuses to give in. And that, again, is absolutely redolent of, of figures from Roman history. There's this guy, Regulus, who leads um, a, a campaign against the Carthaginians in the First Punic War, gets captured, gets sent back to Rome on the proviso that he will sue for terms and encourage the Senate to, um, to basically to surrender to Carthage. Regulus gets back to Rome, refuses to uh, encourage the Senate to surrender, says no, carry on fighting, and then feels honour bound to return to Carthage, where he gets put in a barrel that has spikes driven through it, and he gets rolled down a hill. Wow. And does that kill him? Yes, it does kill him. I mean, that's, of course, McCain survives. But, um, you know, he, he, he kind of goes through torture for America in pretty much the same way. And in a way, one of the most kind of shocking things that Trump said, and, and, you know, kind of darkly funny, was he said, I don't like losers, I don't like my war heroes. Yeah. <laughs> like, who, who get captured. Completely shocking. I've never met Regulus, but I did meet John McCain. Did you? What was he like then? Shook hands with him. Uh, like, in, in a sort of depressing way, in that people sometimes are, he was exactly as he appeared to be on TV. So I have no colourful, you know, he didn't say, let's, there's a great, you know, let's, let's go and watch Call the Midwife or... Um, no, he didn't. Um, there was no. Let's hidden... go and wrestle on the campus, Marsha. <laughs> no, yes, exactly. Um, no, I think we just passed the time of the day, and then created. Uh, to be fair, I was part of a crowd. Um, he was he was working his way down a line, and I was in the line. I was in the crowd. I was observing the New Hampshire primary in two thousand um, when I was a, a graduate student, and met all these wow. candidates. Guys, this is the podcast that brings you brushes with the great exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think we should um Tom, I believe we have to count some mail in ballots. So let's go and um <laughs> let's go and count our ballots. And in the meantime, uh, let's take a short break and we'll be back in a minute. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy. But discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours 
at TravelWyoming.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History. If you've enjoyed these first three or four episodes, please do subscribe and leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you didn't enjoy them, well, please don't. And do get in touch using my Twitter handle, at DC Sandbrook, or use Tom's, at Holland underscore Tom. Just realised, Tom, that could be your uh, cricketing epitaph underscore. Oh, very amusing. Yeah, I, very, I, don't, I, don't very... actually, I don't actually write these links, so you, know, you can blame the producer for that. <laughs> I'm completely blaming the producer for that, and, and, and so unfair. The link, I, have you ever, sensational summer. Do you not notice, Tom, that with these links, there's always a danger of turning into Alan Partridge, isn't there? Do you not think? I kind of feel that Alan Partridge well, know, ghost think... on my shoulder the whole time. Well, Alan Partridge was a commentator, not a player. And I am a player, so I don't feel the danger. I think it's all danger. Good. Very good. And talking of being a player, talking of being a player, we were we were on the subject of uh, John McCain. Yeah. And um, there was a, a, a particularly Roman moment, I thought, um, and kind of interesting for the light of shed on the, on, on the way that um, Roman politics perhaps holds a mirror up to um, contemporary American politics, which was his funeral. Um, and what happened at his funeral was that you had Democrats as well as Republicans going to it. Yes. Um, and... Traditionally in Rome, funerals, you know, the famous example is, is the funeral of Caesar, um, were great political stages where people could make statements. And the fact that Trump was not invited, there was a sense that the entire political establishment, the entire political order, people who held to the Mos Maiorum, the customs of the ancestors, were gathering there to honour a great American hero and to tell Trump that he was not part of the club. And the reason I think that that... Is, is particularly interesting from the Roman context is that it reflects the way in which Roman politics was organised, which was essentially not about policy. It wasn't kind of left or right. It was more about style. It was about whether you upheld the traditional values of the of, of the elite or whether you kind of took the piss out of them. But you know what, you, Tom? You, that, you, that's, you very, them. that's very American. So both the presidents yeah. that we've really talked about, Trump and actually Nixon, they... They projected themselves as the champion of the common man, the ordinary American, the square, sort of square-jawed, square-dealing, the little guy. Nixon talks himself a lot about the little guy against the sneering snobs on Wall Street and in New York and in New England and all the rest of it. So actually, that sense of it being style rather than policy, I think, is something they completely have in common, the two systems. Yeah, and, and I think that what's interesting about Trump is, and, and it so often doesn't come across just in the press reports, is that he's actually quite funny. And quite a lot of what he, he says, so that, you know, the comments about McCain, big classic example, are, 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 are shocking, but are kind of yeah. designed to appeal to people who find the kind of traditional norms a bit stuffy, a bit boring. And that, again, is, is very, very Roman, because the, 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 the kind of people who identify with the, the, the traditional ideals of the Roman Republic, I mean, they call themselves the Bonnie, the good people, the good mm. guys. Um, and set against them, there are people who are called populares, people who appeal to the people. So, I mean, you could translate that as, as populists. And that sense that to be a populist is somehow underhand is absolutely what the Bonnie, the, the good guys are about in Roman politics. And I think it's, that's very much been a trend in, um, in, uh, in American politics as well. Hillary Clinton was, was the sort of Bonnie par excellence, wasn't she? I mean, she was a sort of, sort of, People often talked about her sort of schoolmistressy—is that a word? Schoolmistressy side. The fact that she's, you know, she's always, you know, Miss Goody Two Shoes. 
And Donald Trump was the sort of raucous boy at the back of the class who's stirring up all the others against her. Yeah, well, but, but also all the presidential candidates, I mean, even Nixon, have kind of served their time in the traditional way. So they've 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 gone at what the Romans would call the cursus honorum, the kind of the the, the greasy pole. They've they've um, served their time in politics, they, or they've served in the military, or, or, or whatever, or they academics or whatever. Trump Trump didn't. I mean, Trump came from a background essentially in entertainment, mm. and that's how he's governed. I mean, he you know he it it wasn't that he brought the methodology of entertainment to politics. He turned politics into a form of entertainment. And that, again, was something that was kind of a part of Roman life. There were political figures who used you know, gladiatorial entertainments, whatever, as a way of um, winning popular support. And they would, they would mock the, the, the traditions that um, more conventional political figures upheld. So I wanted to talk to you about that, Tom, because I think you and I have talked about this in other contexts, about... Um, Roman emperors. So, another, you know, Trump is a is a, is an exceedingly rich man. He's actually somebody who, in many ways, you know, uh, people raise their eyebrows that he's the champion of the common man. But but in um, Rome, there were obviously early emperors who you know steeped in in wealth and privilege, but who had enormous success in doing exactly what you've talked about: staging gladiatorial games, pandering to the mob. People like I guess Caligula, Nero. Are we talking about those kind well, of emperors? All, all, all Roman politicians were incredibly rich. I mean, you had to be. It was so, so again, very like American politics. You just couldn't get anywhere without basically being very rich. Um, so that, that 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 wasn't really the issue. The issue was, yeah, was essentially whether you were were you making a pitch to what the common guy thought, or, or were you standing sternly for for the traditional values. So comparison. I mean, you know, all comparisons, obviously like this are, are, are incredibly stretched. But I think not entirely so with American Rome, simply because the American Republic did found itself on the kind of model of, of the Roman Republic. And I think you do get this, this kind of dynamic. So uh, Trump compares, well, I mean, you say he's very rich. Is he? I mean, that's one of the issues. <laughs> I, and I th- I'm sure, you know, one of the reasons why he's so desperate to cling on to the presidency is actually a kind of interesting parallel with, with Julius Caesar, because... Um, Caesar constantly flirted with bankruptcy. He, he he speculated to accumulate. And in doing that, he brushed very, very heavily against the law. So the threat for Caesar was always that his enemies would prosecute him and bring him to trial. Um, and one of the reasons, ultimately, we you know we talked about civil wars in a, in a previous episode, but one of the reasons why Caesar ends up um, crossing the Rubicon and um, involving Rome in, in a civil war is that he gets cornered by his enemies. His enemies want to prosecute him. Caesar can't be prosecuted while he holds an official rank in in the Republic. So he's the governor of Gaul, so he can't be prosecuted. The moment he lays that, that governorship down and becomes a private citizen, then he can be prosecuted. So the issue on the Rubicon is that Caesar wants to go seamlessly from being governor of Gaul to being consul so that he doesn't run the risk of, of of prosecution. And basically, Trump is in a kind of analogous situation. And I'm sure that if, like Caesar, he had battle-hardened legions behind him, he absolutely wouldn't surrender the presidency. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't hesitate to cross the, the, the Rubicon. But, 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 you know, what current events show is that actually he, he doesn't have the Republican party behind no, him. No, no. I mean, did you see that extraordinary... Did you see that press conference at the Garden Centre? That, I think, is the... That's my favourite thing that's ever happened. Did you see that? 
Um, no, he tried to book no. the Four Seasons. So yesterday he tried to book the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia for Rudy Giuliani to unveil all his sort of ballot rigging claims. But they, they booked the wrong place. They booked a place called Four Seasons Total <laughs> Landscaping in, down, in suburban <laughs> Philadelphia, which is between a sex shop and a crematorium. And um, Giuliani was there okay. giving the press conference at the very moment that the networks called the election for Trump. So it's this extraordinarily humiliating way to, as people have said, you know, he started his, yeah. he started his political career coming down a golden escalator and he ended it in the car park of a, of a Philadelphia garden centre. Right, so that's very much not standing on the banks of the Rubicon with Legion behind no. you. <laughs> Sat with a god about to blow on a trumpet and summon you to glory. But what about these characters like um, like the Neros and the... They're Caligulas, you know, these people who you can absolutely imagine doing the Roman equivalent of tweeting how great they are and, and, and mocking their opponents. I mean, the mocking your opponents, which Trump yes. does, that's quite a Roman thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so so, so um, wholesale abuse of your opponents is, is, is very much a Roman thing. And I think that, um, so Augustus, who's the first um, emperor, his genius is to keep these two traditions, the um, the tradition of the Bonnie and the tradition of the Populares, kind of in balance. He 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 is able to um, to play at both of them. Tiberius is is very much um, a traditionalist. He's very much a kind of John McCain figure. Um, Caligula, who succeeds him, his his genius is to discover that you can um, root your power in the Popularist tradition, that you can become very very uh, popular by essentially. Caligula kind of, you know, he he roars around town in, a, in a, with a chariot drawn by kind of hundreds of horses. Um, <laughs> you know, it, this is absolutely the equivalent of having, uh, you know, gold stretch limo everywhere in your yeah, yeah, stretch limos and things like that. So, so it kind of appeals to people. I mean, Caligula understands that, and he understands that he he can be he can win enormous popularity by ripping the piss out of out of the traditional way of doing things, out of kind of humiliating senators, out of mocking them, out of threatening them, out of sometimes killing them. So that's why he makes... that to be a source of great popularity so that, for him. that's why he makes his horse a consul, right? Or says he's going to make his horse a consul, because he wants to mock the it, institution. So he never makes his horse a consul, but it, 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 it's a joke, because he's essentially saying to, to, to senators, I have so much power that if I want to, I could make my horse a consul. Yeah. Um, and then, but then, of course, the... Um, it's the senators who write the history. It's kind of the equivalent of the New York Times who, who who write the history. And so Caligula gets condemned after he gets assassinated, not by senators, but by the Praetorians, because you know, that's the key thing. Don't piss off your base yeah. like that. Very foolish to mock people um, who have swords. Yeah, so so Caligula can't help... I mean, he's take, he, he can't help mocking people, and so he, he mocks um, a commander in the Praetorian Guard, which is a, a fatal mistake, and so that's what dooms him. But um, after, his, after, after Caligula's death... Um, his jokes get rewritten to demonstrate that he was insane. Um, and I think there's a sense in which that's happened with Trump as well, that, that you know, things that he said as, as jokes get rewritten and to illustrate he's mad or a dictator or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and that's the fate of losers. Trump is a loser. Yes, I suppose um, that's true, isn't it? And what about Nero? So is Nero also quite Trumpian? I yeah, think so- he, he is, isn't he? I mean, Nero's got... Am I right? Nero was fat as well, wasn't he? He was very ginormous. Yes. Fellow. 
Yes. Well, so, so you get this you get this kind of swing in in Roman politics where a traditionalist is succeeded by a popularist is succeeded by a traditionalist. So after Caligula, you get Claudius, who's who's an antiquarian, very interested in Roman tradition, and then you get Nero, who is absolutely a popularist to the degree that he uh, you know he does equivalent you know he he plays the lyre in public, he um, races chariots at the Olympics, um, he appears on the stage, and this would be the equivalent of Trump, I guess. Um, kind of headlining Glastonbury, winning from the one. Uh, That's a very unlikely... Awarding himself, awarding himself an Oscar, you know, yeah. sweeping the board at the Oscars. But I mean, um, that's... But again, you know, but, that but first, has, right, with The Apprentice and all that? <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and people like it, and people are amused by it. And when, and when Nero dies, although all the kind of New York Times equivalents are ecstatic about it, there are lots of people who are left bereft and flowers are laid on his grave. And there are even people who, who kind of pop up in Greece pretending to be Nero. And obviously there's no capital in pretending to be Nero if there isn't a kind of market for Nero. Yeah. And in a weird way, that's actually clearly going to happen in America, right? That people will try, there will now be a fight, assuming that Donald Trump is probably too old to run again in 2024, there will be a fight. Oh, and, to, and assuming he doesn't go to prison. Yes. But even if he does, there will be a fight to inherit his mantle, to be the, the new Donald Trump, to appeal to that sort of popularized tradition, won't that? Don't you think? Yeah, and I guess that would be a difference between Trump and Nixon, is that no one wanted to be the new Nixon. No, although, although, here's the interesting thing, that, you know, Nixon himself was discredited. I mean, I know he did his interviews with David Frost and he spoke at the Oxford Union. He tried to sort of transform himself into a statesman and sage, but he never quite pulled it off. But Nixon's politics endured. So Nixon, I, I think a lot of American political historians would say, you know, Nixon is the is the man who really perf- invents and perfects the appeal to the little guy as opposed to the establishment. So he turns. So who are his heirs? So his heirs. I mean, Reagan to some extent. Reagan, you know, is also yeah. you know, I'm an ordinary person. I'm not a stuck up snob. I'm not. You know, Reagan's whole pitch was that I am a, an ordinary middle American. You know, I happen to have been in Hollywood and all the rest of it, but I speak for the you know Main Street America, and that's obviously. You know, Trump's is a more aggressive form of that appeal, but it's a, a world away from the Republican appeal in the mid-20th century or the early 20th century. The Republican Party was clearly a much more sort of staid and elitist party than it became under from Nixon onwards. So Nixon at, um, at school, uh, no, at college rather, he'd founded a society called the Orthogonians, the Square Shooters, and um, they were... Uh, you know, it was all about, um, we are not the, the, the privileged people on campus. We are the ordinary people. We are the, the kind of little guys. We poke fun at our betters. We poke fun at the elite. And that, in that society that Nixon founded when he was a student, you can see the, the kind of contours of Republican Party politics right now that we champion, you know, the small town, the rural village against the big cities. The, the the highly educated people, you know, all of that kind of thing. And, and I think that thing, that Nixon created that and that will endure. And so commentators who, who know vastly more about American politics than I do are saying that um, Trump has kind of created a new constituency. Yeah. Unexpected degree of support from from minority voters. Um, and perhaps that's something that... The, the, uh, future Republican candidate will be able to draw on. Yes. But I wonder, what do you think about the the way in which he's behaved um, over the past few days and presumably will be behaving over the, the months that he has left in the White House? How how damaging do you think that it will be to the fabric of American democracy? And is it something that 
that future candidates, I guess Democrat as well as Republican, might kind of draw lessons from? Or, or, or will it be remembered as a kind of embarrassing incident like the Nixon? I think it will probably be the latter, actually. I, so before this all happened, I mean, a lot of people, and in, myself included, thought this could be really damaging and toxic for American politics, that it could actually corrode the pluralism that democracy depends on, which is basically, as you know, that if you if you lose, you walk away and your opponents don't then kill you or, or put you in jail or something, because they know that when they lose, you won't do, you know, you'll treat them with respect as well. Um, and I think a lot of people feared that this would be a complete disaster and that, you know, there'd be riots on the streets and all the rest of it. But actually what's happened, I mean, he's been ridiculed, hasn't he? The Republican media have largely abandoned him, Fox News, the New York Post and so on. The Republican Party have not come out in, in support of him. And actually, I think it will be remembered as a, a classic sort of tragicomic Trump episode that, you know, he, 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 he left office in this ridiculous, shambolic, slightly, actually slightly pitiful way um and actually his his legacy if he had sort of grumpily conceded which is the alternative i mean it's obviously impossible to imagine him graciously conceding but if he'd kind of reluctantly and rather bitterly conceded then you know i think his legacy would be well it would be less tarnished than it is right now don't you and and what if um uh, what if after he's um it, if he ever gets out of the White House, they drag him out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, w- what if he gets prosecuted? What if he gets convicted? What if he gets goes to prison? What kind of impact would that have? Well, first of all, I, d- I don't think he will go to prison. I mean, Donald Trump is an expert. If there's any- one thing he knows a lot about, it's litigation. And I think he and his lawyers will find ways to prolong any trial, you know, in any case. There'll be appeals and appeals. I also don't actually think there's that much appetite for... And I think people, a lot of Americans just want the soap opera to end, rather like they did with Nixon. Yeah. So Nixon was pardoned yeah. by his successor, Gerald Ford, basically because they thought, yeah, he is clearly guilty of crimes, but we we just want to put this thing to bed now. You know, we don't want it hanging over us for the next five years. And I think that's what people feel about Trump. Um, he, The thing is, he doesn't make a very persuasive martyr, does he? I mean, he's not, he's, that's not really in his sort of skill set, playing the victim. That's something that Trump hates to do because he hates losers. Yeah. So I I don't really, I think he will go and sulk in Trump Tower um, for the rest and tweet for the rest of his days. And he'll try to have an influence over the future of the Republican Party. So he 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 will become the the Edward Heath of American politics. <laughs> that is a very apologies no, there to any American listeners to the podcast. I, 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 I really I, nobody enjoys um, an Edward Heath analogy more than I do. Uh, um, yes, he'll be holed up in the American equivalent of Salisbury, playing his piano, or in his case, playing a lot of golf. Well, I think I think that is a, a perfect note on which to end. Um, we'll finish with the words of. For now, President Donald J. Trump, who tweeted last night in capital letters, I won this election by a lot. And this despite Joe Biden receiving around five million more votes. Bye from us. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. (laughs) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.